Blackjack. Malcolm Turnbull announced that the laws of math do not apply here. <laughs> One of my favourite brands of comedy aerial is brown people and black people making fun of white people. Senators have been dropping like flies recently. Shouting out the fact that in the Knowles Carter family, women just have one name. Backchat on FBI Radio. Yes, you're listening to Backchat, the freshest rap of news and current affairs on your radio. My name is Swetha Das, and today with me in the studio, we have my favourite boy. <laughs> it's Naaman Zhao. How are you? Oh, I'm good, Swetha. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm swell. That's great. I mean, my voice doesn't sound like it, eh? No, it sounds beautiful. I'm just, I'm going through puberty again. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like it? The, the rustic tones of my voice. Yeah, it's about time you went through puberty again. Cause, um... Excuse me. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Naaman. And on that note, <laughs> we have a lot on the show today. We're really excited about today's show because it's NADOC week. This week, we've celebrated the achievements of Indigenous artists, performers and change makers on FBI Radio. We've also delved into the issues affecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups, how we can raise awareness and create solutions. We've got two incredible interviews today, Naaman. So we have Dylan Voller to talk about Indigenous youth incarceration and Dr. Maggie Walter, an academic from the University of Tasmania, to explain the importance of Indigenous data sovereignty. But first... Let's talk about news of the week. And Naaman, what's been your favourite story? Uh, well, it surely has to be the uh, bundle of weird stories coming out of uh, President Trump's visit to the UK. I know. It's been a wild ride. It has been wild. Um, one of the funniest things I think we were talking about earlier today is um, a weird segment by everyone's least favourite person, Piers Morgan, on um, Good Morning Britain, Yeah, where he was interviewing um, Ash Sarkar, who is one of the organisers of um, this huge rally uh, in the UK to protest Trump. So notionally, the segment was about these anti-Trump protests and, you know, why they were being held. But Piers Morgan essentially used the entire thing to just keep uh, talking over her and ask her why nobody protested Obama. We actually have a clip, so yeah. let's, uh, let's listen to that. Hopefully this works. Your hero, Obama. Hey, he's not my hero. I'm our communist. Our heroic <laughs> <laughs> So... So uh, it cut off a bit. Basically, Ash, Ash um, is, as she says herself, a communist who um, was highly critical of Obama during the Obama administration. But I think Piers maybe didn't get that memo when he booked her. So tried to paint her as someone who was pro-Obama, anti-Trump. And the whole thing is just two minutes of him misunderstanding and her saying basically that over and over again. It's really interesting. I think it's interesting the power dynamics of an interview. Because when you have, like, an older, very famous figure interviewing you and mm. he's kind of straw-manning you. And he already made up his mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I, yeah, I, I like that she didn't feel like she had to conform to a certain type of interviewee, particularly being a woman of colour. You know, it's, like, easy to just, like, refrain from, like, delving into those arguments. But she, like, she gave him back. I love it. Yeah. And, like, when you hear these sort of, like, viral, like, arguments on um, news panel shows, I always find it very interesting to see who stops talking and who keeps talking so yeah. it's very like it's very common you know you see like you know people like Piers Morgan the presenters keep talking but there was actually a really interesting battle there and anyway watch it if you if you want yeah you should definitely watch it it's all <laughs> over the internet I mean his visit to the UK has been fraught with a lot of dramatics so he did an interview with the Sun mm. which is um what would you say the equivalent is here uh I'd say it's probably like it's a worse version of the Daily Mail online, which is like But it's like it's like two levels of bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he did an interview with the Sun and he said a lot of bad things. I would say like quite spicy things about Brexit and Theresa May. And he 
comes out in a press conference the next day and he's like, it's all fake news. When it was literally a it's transcript. recorded, yeah. There's actually like a video of it. Do mm. you think the sun might turn on Trump? Yeah, I don't know. That'd be you, nice. Because like he called the sun fake news. That's like do you true, think hey. the their adv- like Trump's advocate, the sun, might turn on Trump? What a time to be alive. That'd be amazing. And then when you're on the same side as the sun, I don't know what that means. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's inter- I think that's the most exciting Welcome to the resistance, news. the sun. <laughs> I love it. Uh, next stop, Daily Mail. Recruit. Yeah. We'll recruit. Yeah. Who? Get him in. Yeah, <laughs> get him in. All right. Well, let's get straight into the show. Uh, as we mentioned, this week is NADOC week. Yeah. So um, this week is NADOC week. And um, last month, the Northern Territory government confirmed that all the children currently in detention in the Northern Territory are Aboriginal. And um, these are numbers that haven't changed since the Royal Commission uh, last, last, essentially last year, into the Territory's youth justice system and youth incarceration, which took place after that ABC Four Corners report about the treatment of Indigenous children in Dondale Youth Detention Centre. So one of those children um, was Dylan Voller, who also spoke very eloquently at that Royal Commission. And um, he's in the studio today to talk about that and about other things as well. Dylan, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me this morning. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Um, so... One of the things that um, happened this week uh, was the police chief of Western Australia um, came out with a very interesting public apology uh, for essentially the role police have played in Indigenous discrimination, some of the historical injustice, and basically owning up to the fact that, you know, um, police have created Indigenous disadvantage. Should we listen to a clip yeah, of it? Yeah, we have it. I will take steps to heal historical wounds between police and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I accept our tumultuous history. I acknowledge the devastating impact our actions and take ownership of being part of that problem. So, Dylan, obviously, you know, take your time because it's the first time you've heard that apology. But listening to that, um, do you think that sort of owning up is enough? I think, no, I think the apology is a big step forward, but I think at this point in time there's still no justice for people like Miss Jew and Elijah Dowdy, and I think, yeah, as an apology, it, it does mean a little, but I think the actions can speak louder words. As I said, there's still no justice, so how about putting the pressure on those, you know, he, as a police commissioner, he can make those steps to bring the justice for these people. I mean, who do you think the apology is for? Because I'm sure when Indigenous people are listening to this, they're not like, oh, great, this is what we need. You know, people are watching and being like, we want more than this. So yeah. who is the apology for? Uh, that's a good point. I think apology to us, how can we take an apology anymore? We've had apologies for a long time now and they still don't, they still don't get nowhere. It still continues to happen. Definitely, definitely. And yeah. the, Royal Commission's report, which was released in November, found shocking and systematic failures over many years in the youth prison system. But after all that, police have said no charges will be laid. The Northern Territory government has announced it will spend $229 million to implement more than 200 of the Commission's recommendations. What do you think about this? I think for me it was pretty um, depressing and pretty let down to know that the guards responsible for assault myself and lots of other kids um, were not criminally charged. I think to know that it 10-year-old kid or 11-year-old kid can walk down the street and you know, smash a window or steal from the shop and they're locked up for six months, but then you've got fully fully trained UFC fighters working in the centre centre and giving the workers with children cart mm. assaulting kids and there's no criminal charges and no responsibility taken. It's showing that other staff can do the same and get away with it and that's why it continues to happen. Yeah, I think it's very... I was going to say, it's very interesting that 
the commissioner said he wanted to take steps, but in the Northern Territory, you know, like surely that is one of the steps that should have been taken. Yeah, and I think for me as well with healing process, if I mean, if guards could come out like the police commissioner apolog- apologize, it would make it a lot easier for me to be able to forgive and try and move on with my life. But at the moment, no, I, I, I can't forgive if they're going to get up on a stand at a royal commission and try and deny everything that happened. So the, the John Dale story broke two years ago, was it? Yeah, just over a year and a half just ago. Just over a year and a half ago. Have you seen many changes been made since that story broke? Because I think that was a pivotal moment in Australian yeah. history. I think... There's not many changes. I guess the only thing is the restraint chairs have been um, banned, stuff like that. Um, but I guess even with the restraint chair, there's a lot of people don't know. They think that the restraint chair, actually, the incident actually happened in Dondale. It didn't actually happen in an adult prison where I got transferred over to adult prison when I was only 16. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot more changes that need to be made. But obviously, I think there's still ongoing stuff happening in the Northern Territory prisons as well as um, prisons all over Australia. I mean, we've seen riots up in Dondale lately and kids aren't going to be acting out like that unless something's happening you know mm. so does that make um you know the royal commission and this sort of continuing all these promises was it money well spent or i think it was a waste of money when they could have been having a free investigation with the government could have just done it started wasting money and put all the money into a, a magnificent programs like Bushmob in Alice Springs that actually helped save me and a lot of other young people and actually put the effort in and they've actually got the right staff and they care about kids and actually coming in to make the difference in kids' lives and not staff that are coming in to physically assault kids and get their next paycheck. Yeah, um, can you tell us a bit more about Bushmob? I'm interested to hear about that. Yeah, Bushmob is a wonderful program located in Alice Springs that takes kids in all over Australia, Indigenous kids, I think it's between... T- 12 and 24, um, they more of a therapeutic and cultural-based approach to counselling and mental health issues. Um, they go out horse riding, go out camping, and they get you to school, teach you to cook, and all the basic things of what, what um, you know, and show you trying to teach you a stable life, building resumes and trying to find jobs. So they give you that knowledge of when you, what to actually do when you're in that life scenario and you're by yourself. That's great. So it's like more of a focus on like rehabilitation and yeah. learning and education. Is that only in that one area or is it? Yeah, I know that that is a rehabilitation centre and drug and alcohol it's targeted because um, they had a lot of sniffing and stuff like that in Alice Springs and uh, it was a, uh, opened up a good, wouldn't know exactly, but it's been around for a while, but it's just getting better and better and improving. They did have two uh, stations open. They had one, an actual bush uh, camp out near Loves Creek but the government cut funding to it last year or early this year and shut it and got it shut down. So what kind of changes would you like to see? Would you like to see more money being invested in initiatives like that? Yeah, I think into more grassroots and more um, cultural rehabilitation centres and try and get more of a therapeutic approach, more of a punishment and punitive approach. I think it doesn't work and it shows, shows it from experience from myself and a lot of people I know you've got too many kids don't, Kids, especially kids with behaviour problems, they're not going to react too well to someone barking orders and abusing them, so they're not going to listen. It's about that therapeutic approach and taking that approach and showing them that care and that love. And even though, yeah, they're kids and they've done bad things in there, but showing that you can make your way up and change from that. Totally. Thank you for talking to us about That's this all, Dylan. But uh, we want to talk about some music. You have a, a mate on the air? Yeah, I give a shout out to my brother, Arthur Ware. Yeah. Um, it's a new song called Show Me from. Aware, JL, DC, and Jade Quaid. Yeah. So everyone should get around and love the artist page. Is they're all from SA there. 
So we're going to play two songs, actually. So we're going to play this song and we're going to play another song, which I'm really excited about. It's your song. Yeah. Me featuring Talia King from down Wollongong ways. Um, made a song earlier this a couple months ago called Breakthrough. We'll be performing it um, on Saturday down at Port Kembla at 2 p.m. to raise money for Black Wallaby and writing poetry for society for men in incarceration. Awesome. So that's Saturday at 2 p.m. Yep. in Port Kembla. Port Kembla at the old, we'll the old truck station. At the old, oh, perfect. Yep. We're going to put it on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, get down there. We'll promote that. Uh, so let's, let's play the songs. Do you yep. want to intro the first song? Uh, yeah, this is Arthur Ware, uh, JLDC and Jay Quaid with Show Me. So that was Breakthrough by Dylan Voller. And before that, Show Me by Awer. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio. That's right. And so now we're going to talk about the Uluru Statement of the Heart. It was drafted to call upon the establishment of a First Nations voice in the uh, Australian Constitution and a Makarata Commission into supervising the dialogue between government and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Maggie Walter. She's a Palawa Professor of Sociology and Pro-Vice-Chancellor at the University of Tasmania, as well as a participant of the 2017 First Nations National Constitutional Convention at Uluru. And she says that the key to the statement's aspiration is data sovereignty. We have Dr. Maggie Walter on the line to unpack this further. Maggie, who are you? Very well. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so can you explain how significant data sovereignty is for the Uluru Statement? Uh, look, it, it's, it's at the centre of the Uluru Statement because the Uluru Statement talks to um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander aspirations for how we want to be, how we want to um, proceed and live in, it in the future and how we want to interact with government and non-Indigenous people in Australia. And for us, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, to achieve our aims, we need the data to inform the decision-making on how those things proceed. And at the moment, we don't have it. Right. Um, hi, Maggie. It's Naaman here. Um, you wrote in your essay in the Griffith Review that there's a difference between, you know, the data we have and the data we need. Um, and in many ways, we're only yeah. collecting sort of the wrong kind of data for this, you know, aspirational moving forward. Could you, um, yeah, elaborate, elaborate a little bit more on that? Yes, so we've got what the Indigenous data paradox, where we have this huge amount of data about deficit data, what we call 5D data. It's about our difference, our disparity, our disadvantage, our dysfunction in some areas. And that is collected again and again and again. So it's about our poor health outcomes, our high levels of unemployment, high levels of incarceration. So if you want to find any of those data everywhere, just Google it. it it's instant. If you want to find out um, data that pertains more to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander life worlds about how we see ourselves, our own cultures, our own communities, our own First Nations and our data we need for nation building, you won't find it anywhere. It doesn't exist. It's not collected. So we have this real disparity between this huge body of data that is just... You know, there's nothing wrong with some of it, but it is all about deficit. And then this huge um, data desert for the data we need to progress and move forward. And at the base of that, what is wrong is that we've got a complete lack of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander participation in the decision making around what data are collected, how it's disseminated, how it's analysed, how it's used and for what purpose. 
Totally, Maggie. That's and so- that's when we need to make the change. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a really good point. Power really seems to lie in who collects the data, who interprets it. So, like, what can we do to put more Indigenous people in places where they can enact this power and, and make a change? We, we need to make a data gathering agencies, and, of course, it's not just government anymore. So we've got big data mining, we've got uh, data being uh, collected from all over the place, and, and Aboriginal data within this is a really valuable resource, but we're not getting the benefit. So we need, uh, especially government, to start with government agencies such as the Australian Bureau of Statistics and the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare to come to the party and negotiate with us about Indigenous data governance, so that we, and that is the decision making, so that we work together with government to actually get the data we need in the format that we need and also capacity build uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples right across these realms to be able to be statistically literate and also to be part of the data process. Right. And Maggie, how have um, government responded to these calls for greater cooperation and these calls to you know actually um, change the way they collect data? Um, I think they come kind of the idea. So um, the Mayam Nairu Bungara uh, Indigenous Data Collective in Australia, um, we are pushing that as a group of um, peak organisation people and academics. But we're also linked into a global network. So it's not just us in Australia. Maori, uh, First Nations, Native Americans are all asking for the same thing. And under Article 38 of the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People, absolutely pertains to our rights around decision-making around data collection. So we have the, le- the legal basis in UNDRIP. We also have the global movement. And I think that government agencies are starting to see that everybody wins if Indigenous people are at the decision-making table right at the start. We get better data, we get data that uh, informs our own aspirations, and we get data for nation rebuilding. So that's interesting how you mentioned uh, like da- Indigenous sovereignty networks that are popping up in New Zealand and it's kind of popping up, you write in your article, it's popped up in a lot of other colonial nations. Do you think that there's a lot more to why Australia is behind in this data movement? I feel like there is quite a lack of regulation and understanding of the power of data and I feel like if that is lacking then you know, it must be really hard to get Australia up to scratch with Indigenous data sovereignty. Look, it is, and uh, in, in, in the, all the nations who are, um, uh, whose Indigenous peoples and being led by uh, Indigenous academics are pushing Indigenous data sovereignty, we are lagging last. Um, but there is potential for us to um, skip, <laughs> learn from our, our, our global brothers and sisters, uh, and skip some of the messy bit at the start and jump right up and so that we can say, OK, to, to some extent having a very poor data terrain for Indigenous peoples means that we can actually start from the bottom and say, right, look, let's just work out exactly where we go and then go there and miss all the middle bit. We already know from what's happening in, in uh, New Zealand, Aotearoa in New Zealand, that you can actually have a Maori statistical framework that really informs how Indigenous data are done, who has access to them, how they're interpreted, um, that the ownership stays with the people from the data that the data were collected and that the data has to work in the best interest of Indigenous people. 
So these things have already been set. We don't have to reinvent everything. We just need to learn and actually work together to put in a quite sophisticated uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander statistical framework in Australia that is agreed to through government, but also, and you know, within our ethics frameworks as well, it needs to be there. So there is, there's a lot of work to do, but there's huge potential for making quite rapid and quite important gains very fast. Yes, very interesting work. Thank you for everything you've done, Dr. Maggie Walter. Um, that's all we have for the show today, but thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. I'd love to talk Thank you so much. Uh, and also thank you to our other guests, Dylan Voller, and of course, as always, thank you to our producers, Natalie Sokolovska and Amelia Zhao. Yes, and a reminder to everyone that Dylan Voller is playing next Saturday, 2 p.m., Port Campbell at the Old Truck Station. And um, as he told us to say, there's a lot of other acts that aren't just him, and all the proceeds will be going to a great cause. So make your way down there if you can. Yes, and also today there is the Sydney Harbour Bridge Walk. It's a walk to raise awareness in support of the campaign to fly the Aboriginal flag on the Sydney Harbour Bridge permanently. It's on today. It started at 10.45am, but it'll be on for another couple of hours if you want to head down. It's free for all ages and it's around the Tarpeian Lawn of the Royal Botanical Gardens, Macquarie Street, Sydney. But... Like I said, that's all we have the show today. Thank you, Naaman, for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. What uh, a great time. We had a great time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Shall we go to a song? Yes, let's. Yes, let's go to a song. So I'm really excited to play the song. This is The Hunt by Briggs. So Adam Briggs has been announced as the 2018 National N- NIDOC Artist of the Year. We're going to play his song. Thank you so much for joining us today on Back Chat. We'll see you all next week.